Well, good morning. My name is Pastor Jesse Lusco, and so good to be with you here today. Something that I always like to be intentional about communicating every single week is just that we want to be a place in the city where people who maybe are investigating Christianity, maybe you even consider yourself a skeptic, maybe you're not really a person of faith and somebody brought you here, we just always want to communicate. This is a place where you can belong before you believe or behave, that this is a place of warmth and welcome, and we want to be an access point, an entry point in the city, whatever your experiences in the past, and I just am so glad that you are here today. And uh, we've been in a series talking about community. We've been talking about that life is a fight you can't face on your own. And that's this concept of hold the line, that we need to lock shields, that there's going to be experiences that you go through in life that you cannot face on your own. Speaking of that, have you ever tried to assemble something from Ikea? You ever been in that kind of a situation? It's like Legos for grown-ups. I mean, you just have bruises on your thumbs, Allen wrenches for days, right? Just, just crazy, crazy experience. And it's not just the assembly process that you need to get by with a little help from your friends. It's not just that. Okay, That could be a, a trial. That could be a difficulty in and of itself. But it's also sometimes in the store. Because whether you're buying something at Ikea or at some other department store, I bought a dresser recently. And you see this box, and you, you just, you're, I'm feeling kind of masculine. I'm feeling like, oh, that box is no problem. Okay, it's no match for me. I could just carry it right out of this store. What, it's only like four feet tall, a couple inches wide. Well, those things are densely packed, all right? You're going to have a hernia, like, trying to load this thing down the stairs. And then I notice on the label, it's good to read instructions even when it's printed on the box, it says, team lift, team lift. Will everybody say that with me? Team lift. And that's what I've titled my message today. And so then, you know, a Target employee sees me, you know, nearly needing to call an ambulance for me uh, uh, as I carry this dresser through the store. And, and they radio under their thing, breaker, breaker, we've got a team lift on aisle 97. You know, they come down the aisle, they come over, and they, it's like, hey, it is actually against store policy to not carry this as a team, okay? You cannot carry this alone. And I think that's a helpful illustration that there are certain burdens Certain things, certain things that are just so heavy, they're so intense, that if you try to face them alone, you're going to find yourself in a worse situation than you were in in the first place. You know what I'm talking about? That There are burdens, there are, are things that we face in this life that if we try to go it alone, difficulties, circumstances, that if we try to face them alone, it will only make the situation worse. What I'm trying to communicate to you this morning is this. We are better together in trials. We're better together in trials. Can we just say, say it together? We're better together. We said it a bunch of times in the series, but I love it. I want it locked into your mind. I want it to be something that you hold on to, that you live out, particularly as we go into these action groups. Can we just say that together? One, two, three. We are better together. We're better together. And that's exactly what Paul has in his mind as he talks about some of the burden, some of the pressure that he was facing, some of the things that were weighing down on his life. He talks about the fact that we are better together. Would you look with me, if you turn in your Bible, if you got a 
You can download a Bible at YouVersion, YouVersion app. You can use it uh, uh, online. You know, there's Bible Gateway, Blue Letter Bible. It's, I think it's helpful to read along. We put it on the screens because we want to be a place where outsiders can come in. But I think it's helpful to follow along, to be able to look at the context. If you want to turn there in your Bible. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, we'll start off in verse 3. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ the Father of compassion, and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. If we are distressed, It's for your comfort and salvation. If we're comforted, it's for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so you also share in our comfort. We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced In the province of Asia, we were under great pressure far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Think about those words. We despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we'd received the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He's delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope, and he will continue to deliver us. As you help by your prayers, then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favor granted to us, in answer to the prayers of many. Speaking of prayer, would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you that you've spoken to us. We are convinced that you have revealed yourself, that you're the God who not only works for people, but you work in people, you work through people. And we thank you for the words that have come down through the writings of Paul to us and that it speaks to us living in 2016, living in Portland, Oregon, facing maybe different trials than he was facing, different obstacles, different pain. But we thank you that you're the same God, that you're the same yesterday, today, and forever, and that you speak to us in our suffering. I pray that if there are people here who are going at life alone, who haven't experienced that comfort, who have not come into a relationship with you, or Christians maybe who haven't come into relationships with one another, Lord, I pray that today would be a a day of change, that they'd look back on this day where their life was forever different. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So this passage is about suffering. He uses several different words. He uses words that refer just to the normal pressures of life, the normal difficulties that everyone faces. He uses words that describe a a specific kind of suffering, a suffering that happened specifically because he was a Christian, a suffering that happened because he was following Christ in a world that was hostile to the gospel. But how are we going to face suffering? 
I mean, when you think about suffering, when you look at a worldview of suffering, uh, uh, you can view it as karma, which says that ultimately all the suffering you face in this life is a result because of sins you faced in a different life. You could view it as the Buddhists do, try to say that suffering doesn't exist, that suffering is simply an illusion, and that once again, if you change yourself, if you kind of go at life the right way, if you uh, approach things in in a specific way and you suppress desire and you extinguish desire, then you can extinguish suffering because it's an illusion and you can achieve nirvana. Or you could, you know, think about suffering in, in, the, in the way that sometimes Christianity, when it's gotten distorted, it's gotten perverted. And, and, and people start saying, you know, if you live a good life, if you live a faith-filled life, then you'll live a pain-free life. And that's how Christianity has sometimes been distorted to say, you know, if you just live a good life, if you just live a faith-filled life, then nothing negative will ever happen to you. You've got to banish negativity. You've got to get rid of it, you know. And there's that mentality Towards suffering. But when we look at the scripture, we don't see any of those things. What, we, what do we see? We see that some of the most faith filled, some of the most godly, some of the most Christ exalting people, and including Christ himself, they lived lives filled with more suffering than anyone else. And when you think about Job, you think about Joseph, you think about Jeremiah, you think about Jesus himself, these godly men, these godly women, they lived lives full of pain, full of difficulty, full of suffering. Nobody comes through this life unscathed. It doesn't matter what you do. I mean, you may be able to, to order your groceries through Postmates. You may be able to have electronic doors that you can just push an app on your phone and all your doors lock. You may have self-driving cars. But ultimately, no matter how far technology advances, no matter how far medicine takes us, no matter how far we progress, there's always going to be instances where we suffer. Here's Paul, and he has such a realistic view of reality. It's It's not, you know, saying that nothing bad ever happens to good people, that if you just believe enough, nothing bad will happen to you. It's not anything like that. He actually just was so upfront about suffering. He's so real about it. He uses this word pressure, which is a Greek word that was used to describe a ship that was overloaded with cargo so that it was sinking, or an animal that had too many burdens placed on its back so that it was collapsing under the pressure. That's how he felt when he was in Asia. He's trying to advance the gospel, and there's just pressures weighing down upon him to the point he thought he was going to die. So we're going to suffer. That's an encouraging message, right? God bless you. Have a great day. See you later. Catch you next week. But no, obviously we've come for hope, right? We've come to see what the scripture says, how we can make, make this painful life a meaningful life. And that's what we're going to be talking about. So the first thing I want to communicate to you is that our pain has a purpose. Our pain has a purpose. Secular views of reality, beliefs that, you know, this world's it. When you die, you rot. Uh, that view that just there's only materialism, there's no God, there's no afterlife. Just, or maybe you just don't even think about it. You're just kind of, I'm just focused on the here and the now. When you live a secular life, it really doesn't give you any resources For suffering. Because what does the modern age really tell us? It tells us that the secret to living a meaningful life is to look within, right? You look within and you find your deepest desire, your truest self, your truest desire. You look within 
and then you pursue that desire and you don't let anyone stop you, right? That's pretty much what our age tells us. That's the way to live a meaningful life. Find out what you really, 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 really want and then don't let anything stop you from getting that. That's what our culture tells us. But what does that leave us if getting what you want is the way to live a meaningful life? What do you do when life doesn't give you what you want? What do you do when, when this, these obstacles, these circumstances that are completely outside of your control, no matter how strong you are, no matter how you got the Clint Eastwood, true grit, no matter what, how, how tough, tough of a high roller you are, there are inevitably going to be circumstances you cannot control, and the secular view does not give you any resources to deal with those kinds of situations. Because if your truest desire is, is really the way to live a meaningful life, that tells you that suffering is meaningless. That suffering, it's just an obstacle. That suffering just destroys you. It gives you no resources to deal with the suffering that's inevitable for all of us. Suffering will destroy you. Suffering is meaningless because life is meaningless. That's what a secular take on reality would tell us. Daniel Dennett, he's one of the new atheists, and he, uh, he says this, that the problem of pain and suffering is evidence of God's non-existence. That's what he says. The problem of pain and suffering is evidence of God's non-existence. C.S. Lewis, who was an atheist, who was teaching at Oxford University, and he talks about how he thought the same thing as Daniel Dennett. In this quote, is from Mere Christianity, says this, My argument against God was like this. This universe seems so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man doesn't call a line crooked unless he has some idea of what a straight line is. What was I comparing this universe with if I was calling it unjust? Of course, I could have just given up my idea of justice by saying it's nothing but a private idea of my own. But then, my argument against the existence of God collapsed as well. For my argument depended on saying that the world was truly unjust, not simply that it went against what I fancied. Atheist, atheism turns out to be too simple. His point is, is he's saying this, he's saying, I was looking out at nature and looking out at reality and going, this is unfair, this is unjust, this should not be the way I want it to be. This, should, this is not the way it should be. This isn't the way that it ought to be. Therefore, God does not exist. But then he realized, wait a minute, what am I comparing nature with? What standard am I equating it with? There must be something above nature. There must be a supernature, which gave me this idea that justice is real, that it's not just an idea, that it's not just wishes or fancies, but that it's something higher, greater standard. And he realized there must be a supernature. Otherwise, my argument doesn't even work against the existence of God. And that's why he became one of the most prolific Christian writers to ever live. That's how C.S. Lewis found himself and so, God allows pain, but why does he allow pain? What's the purpose of pain? If this world is out of order, if this world is unjust, if this world is contrary to that supernature, then, then what's the way the world should be, and why does God allow so much pain? Well, Jeremiah twenty two twenty one gives us a clue. This is God speaking, and he says this, I spoke to you in your prosperity... But you said, I will not hear. 
This has been your manner from your youth, that you did not obey my voice. See, he's saying that I spoke to you, Israel. I spoke to you, my people, in your prosperity. I spoke to you when everything was going the way you liked it, the way that every, when everything was, was perfect and fair, but you would not listen. It reminds me of another C.S. Lewis quote. It's really famous. He says that pain is God's megaphone to wake up a deaf world. That God whispers to us in our pleasures. That God speaks to us in our conscience. But that God shouts to us in our pain. Haven't you found in so many people's lives that it's not until they run up against those circumstances, not until they run up against that pain, they run up against that suffering, that they're awakened to the fact that they can't do life alone, that they're awakened to the fact that they need God? See, suffering wakes us up to the fact that we are not in control. We live with this illusion that we're in control. That's what the technology kind of implies to us, makes us think, oh, I've, I've got it locked. I've got life cracked. I got this thing mastered. But then pain comes and knocks the feet out from underneath you and, and kind of forces you to look up. Abraham Lincoln said, I was many times driven to my knees in prayer because I had nowhere else to go. And that's precisely what Paul writes in in. Verse 8 of this chapter, he says, We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we'd received the sentence of death, but this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Can we put our hands together for that, man? It's amazing. It's amazing. See, we live these lives of self-reliance, just doing what we want, just trying to pursue our desires, but God sometimes upends us. Why? So we won't rely on ourselves. So that we'll recognize our need for him. And if we're going to be a community, we're really meant to be the community of resurrection. We're meant to be the community that believes that this world isn't all that there is, that this world is out of order, that this world is broken, that this is not the world that there was meant to be, and this is not the world that will ultimately be. And the proof of that, the beginning of that, is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I was reading the Theological Dictionary of the Greek New Testament. It's like, it is the most longest dictionary you could ever read. You could learn more about words than you'd ever want to learn. But he's talking about this word comfort there and the way that the Greeks used it. And uh, the, the author Kittle, he writes this. He says this. There was a profound lack of hope that characterized the world of antiquity. The dead were called blessed whether they were to live on or cease to be. Uh, the transitoriness as a source of consolation is a cold comfort. The pessimistic principles that life is evil and that death was a release from this world testifies to the hopelessness and the sense of meaninglessness that gripped the ancient world. Now, they talked about Elysium. They talked about an afterlife. But he says in that passage that, that anytime they talk about it, there was kind of this sense of unreality, the sense of like, oh, yeah, he's in a better place, that kind of a mentality. But that's why the gospel was so explosive, because these converted you know, persecutors like Paul, who used to be Pharisees, who became preachers, they didn't go along going, oh, you know, he's in a better place, he, he's in heaven, everything's all right. What did they go around with? 
They went with this certainty. It wasn't pie in the sky. It wasn't a light at the end of a tunnel like, oh, every cloud's got a silver lining. It was certain. He said, I've seen Christ risen from the dead, and that changes everything. If Jesus is back from the dead physically, literally, that means that Jesus is one day going to resurrect the whole world, that this out-of-order world will not always be this way, that he's going to right every wrong, and that the resurrection is the beginning of that. There wasn't like this just as like, oh, well, it's kind of hopeful. Maybe he's in heaven. We'll see him again one day. It was like, no, I physically saw Jesus back from the dead, and he promised that I am the resurrection, I am the life, and anyone who believes in me, though he lives, though he dies, he will live. That's what Jesus promised. That's why we don't hold to the, the, these, these fables and these myths, but it's, it's that Jesus historically, literally, physically got back up from the dead, and that changes everything. And when we believe that, we'll quit letting our lives orbit around ourselves, and it'll fill us with this confidence and the equipment to be able to comfort one another. So... Our pain has a purpose. It's to wake us up to our need of God. It's to wake us up of our need that this world isn't the way that it ought to be. And the resurrection tells us this ain't the world that will always be. That's what the resurrection tells us. But the next thought is this. Some loads can't be carried alone. Even though Paul had seen Christ risen from the dead, even though he was filled with the Holy Spirit, even though he was full of all this passion, he recognized he could not do it alone. He recognized he couldn't carry this load alone. And that's why in verse 11, he talks about their prayers, that they were helping together with their prayers, that he needed other people, even though he was this this super saint, this all-star, rock star believer, he needed other believers. He needed their prayers. He writes in chapter 7, we'll throw it up on the screen for you, uh, says this, For indeed, when we came to Macedonia... Our bodies had no rest. We were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts. Inside were fears. Nevertheless, God who comforts the downcast comforted us. How did God do it? By the coming of Titus. See, oftentimes God chooses to work through people. Because if part of sin is separation from people, then part of redemption is unification. It's the unity of believers. That's part of this process of redemption. And through the love that was displayed through Titus, that is how God comforted Paul. And when we think about the word comfort, it's actually interesting. We can't just think of like sympathy, like, oh, there, there, Paul. It's going to be all right. It wasn't that. It's pretty cool, actually. The word comfort that he uses nine times in this passage, it has its, origin, it, it has its root in the word for bravery, that we make each other brave, that we give each other not just like, oh, you're going to get by, you're going to get through this. We make each other courageous. We fill each other with bravery because Jesus is back from the dead. This is how Paul always rolled. It wasn't just Titus who comforted him. I mean, Paul always rolled with a crew. He always had a squad he always ends his letters. What does he say? He says, hey, Tychicus says, what's up? Tychicus says, what's good? He's like, Silas, hey, tell him, holla at your boy. He's always doing that. 
He's always talking about some guy over there who's part of his posse, part of his crew, part of his squad. He's always rolling with these people because even he couldn't go it alone. Hey, if Paul the Apostle could not do the Christian life alone, what makes you think you can? What makes you think you can? And that's why we're starting these action groups. Because we know that there are obstacles we're going to face in this life. We cannot go it alone. And if you sign up for an action group, we've been so stoked about just the response we got, that people crave community, that people are longing for this, they're looking forward to this. And I just want to encourage you, follow through. Follow through with that commitment. Sink your roots down deep. Say, I'm going to make time for it. I'm going to make it a part of my life. I'm not going to find time. I'm going to make time for it. Because you can make time for it now, or you can pay for it later. That's how it goes. Now's the time to do it. I read a pretty interesting article just showing how this is the case in all of life. Uh, There's an interesting article from the Society of Neurologists in which they discovered that people who had severe injuries and had surgery recovered more quickly, exponentially more quickly, just simply because somebody visited them. That they found that patients who had people come visit them in the hospital, just had a much faster recovery time. There was less inflammation, that neurologically throughout their whole nervous system, things were better, that they just made quicker recoveries. And they said, I I like the caveat though, it said, it cannot be through social media. It has to be real visitation. It has to be physical conduct, people coming in, talking with you, touching you, just being there for you, that this just made a faster recovery time. And the same thing's true in all of our trials whether it's a surgery or it's something else, you're going to bounce back quicker. You're going to get through it braver. You're going to be stronger. We're going to be better when we're together. We're going to be better together. You know, trials are going to come. It's not a matter of if. It's a matter of when. Trials are going to come. Storms are going to come into your life. One of the worst time to try to build a tornado shelter in the middle of a tornado. <laughs> that is the absolute worst time to try. Oh my gosh, wait, 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 Dorothy, let's get to the shelter, right? Yeah, you don't want to do that in, in the midst of the tornado. You want to build it ahead of time. You might have been here during the first week where we were talking about this phalanx concept, this testudo, this shield wall. We want to try to hold the line. We want to try to build that shield wall before the arrows start to fly. <laughs> It just goes better that way. I mean, you want to kind of get in the formation like, oh, I've already been stabbed in the jugular vein with an arrow. Let's build a shield wall. That doesn't help you very much. You want to build it ahead of time. Trials are going to come into your life. You know this. Many of you have probably suffered more in life than I have. Maybe you know this. Maybe you don't. Maybe you haven't gone up against a difficulty. You want to get in formation. You want to start locking shields with other Christians. You want to have people who can comfort you, who can make you brave with the same comfort that they've received through Christ ahead of time. You want to start building those formations now. I like what it says in 1 Peter 1, 6. It says this. It says, In this you greatly rejoice, talking about our salvation that we have in Christ, Though now, for a little while, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials. Some translations translate that manifold. You know what it means? It means multicolored. This is Skittles trials. There's one, there's just every shade of the rainbow of trial that can come up against you. Oh, this is so encouraging. There's more kinds of suffering than there is salt and straw ice cream flavors, including the seasonal ones. For a limited time only, right? This kind of pain. But you know what? There's manifold trials in life, aren't there? 
There's all different shapes and sizes and colors. There's all kinds of pain that comes at us in this life. But what's so fabulous about Peter's letter, 1 Peter 4.10 says this, Each of you should use whatever gift you've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. See, there may be manifold suffering in this life, but in the body of Christ, God has provided manifold, multicolored, salt and straw grace that we can minister to one another. There's people who can have your back and that when you're a part of a community, you're gonna find people who can meet that specific need, who can give you that specific gift, who can have that specific word of encouragement, who can carry your load in a specific way. And if you were all alienated, isolated, all out by yourself, You would never experience that. You'd miss out. We are better together. I've witnessed this in this church. I'm going to talk about this a little bit more later. But I've found that the people who've experienced the most loss are oftentimes the people who show the most love. And there's a couple women in this church. Uh, one of them is actually uh, a part of my family. It's my, it's my wife's mom. But there's another woman in this church. And both of them have suffered greatly. And just in the short life of our church, I've been absolutely astonished just to see the way when needs have presented themselves. Like not, not just like spiritual needs, like I'll pray for you, but like physical needs. Like I cannot pay my rent this month or I can't do this. That The people in the worship band, people who are a part of the team that serve here at the church, I've just been amazed to watch tangible physical needs be met by other people in the church say, you know what, I'll pay that for you. I'll pay the price. For, I'll pay the tuition for that class next month. You can't afford it. I'll pay that for you. The people will really literally have your back. That's the kind of community that we want to be, isn't it? That we want to be bare minimum Christians? Let's put our hands together. You know, that's the vision. That's the vision for action groups. That people would look and it's not like, oh man, that's really brutal. That's tough. You know, I'm rolling in the dough over there. But you, you know, just nice luck. I'll pray for you, bro. No, but that we'd actually meet each other's needs. That we'd, my wife and I, this is honestly, you know, Paul talks about how there's suffering for the gospel's sake. This is without a doubt, hands down, bar none, been the hardest year of our lives. And it's been the best year of our lives. Simultaneously amazing how that works. But, but in our suffering, it's been amazing the way that people rise up. Our little boy got swine flu. It's like, are you kidding me? Like, I didn't even know that was around anymore. That was like, that is so 2009. Like, who gets swine flu? Okay, my little, little three-year-old boy gets swine flu. There were people here from the church who beat us to the hospital, literally. That, 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 they, that they were there before us, just providing meals, having our backs. When you really sink your roots down in the body of Christ, that's the way it'll be. That's the way it should be. That's the vision for these action groups that we'd really have each other. 1 Corinthians 12, 14 says this. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. But if one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. There are some loads you can't carry alone. There are some loads you can't carry alone. We are better together. I'm kind of a why guy. A lot of the time I talk about why we should do things, why we should have, you know, have things happen, why we should obey the Bible. But I think I want to talk just for a minute about how. How. If people are going to suffer and we're better suffering together, we're better together in our trials, how do we do this? Well, I want to say this. We need to empathize, not just theologize. We need to empathize, not just theologize. Uh, it's one of the points. Come on, come on, back there. It's ketchup, ketchup, ketchup. Oh, maybe 
the point didn't get made. I don't know what's going on. This is really annoying. But I've always been fascinated by the way that when Jesus in John chapter 12 comes to the tomb of Lazarus, who he's going to resurrect in like five minutes before he goes to resurrect him, before he like solves all the problems, before he fixes everything, what does he take time to do? He still takes time to weep. In fact, it actually says that he gets angry, that there's this anger that rises up in him at death, at suffering, at sin, and he weeps, even though the problem's going to be fixed in like five minutes. If I was Jesus rolling up there, I'd be like, quit your crying, you babies, watch this, check this out, right? But that's not what he does. He took time and wept before he went on to resurrect. And we need to be the same way with one another. You know, people roll in all trite, just throwing out cliches, just coming in like, it's going to be okay. Don't you know God's in control? God's on the throne. Let's put a little John 3.16 band-aid on your bullet wound. Anybody ever experienced that? Like the hallmark Christian answer where she's like, hey, you're going to get through it, man. It's going to be good. Just trust God. No, that is not biblical Christianity. That's not the way we should roll in our action groups. It says, uh, Romans 12, 15, rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn, or some translations say, weep with those who weep. I want us to be the kind of church where we walked softly around broken hearts. I read this interesting article about how, how to do condolences right. Condolence means to suffer alongside of. And the right way to do it isn't to come and just, oh, just run in your mouth. Sometimes just to not say anything. Just sit there and be with somebody. Don't throw out these trite, cliche answers. Empathize before you theologize. Empathize before you theologize. Just come there. It's not, sometimes the best way to be a comforter is to say, man, that sucks. Like, honestly, like, you lost your job, dude, that, that sucks. That's, that's really hard. Is people will only, people will only see the depths of God's grace after we've acknowledged the depths of their pain. People will only see the gravity of our answers when we acknowledge the gravity of their suffering. So what we need to do is, is not be trite, because if you, if you give trite, trite uh, if you treat their pain like it's trite, then they're going to think your answers are trite. But if you really acknowledge the depth of their suffering, the depth of their trouble, the depth of their problems, when you come in with the message of the gospel, when you come in with the message of the resurrection, which isn't trite, which is real, when you come in with the message of the cross, it's going to be that much deeper. Don't give platitudes. Don't give trite answers. Another thing I, I, I thought of as I was talking with some people is to be proactive, not passive. Be proactive, not passive. Uh, it's really easy to mean well and just be like, oh, let me know if I can do anything. Oh, yeah, you, your dad just died. You're in the hospital. This situation's going on. Uh, let me know if I can do anything. But, but oftentimes, you, you, you're in such an emotional roller coaster. I mean, you don't want to sit there thinking, telling people like, yes, could you, think you could organize a meal train for us. That would be fantastic. It's like, no, be proactive, not passive. And if we want to comfort one another and we, wanna, we don't want to just say, oh, sending thoughts. I'm praying for you. You never pray for them. You never actually do it. No, be proactive. When somebody's suffering, let's rise up. Let's do something about it. That's what 1 John tells us. It says this. This is how we know love. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions 
and he sees his brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Anybody excited to be part of an action group? We're going to say, hey, hey, we're going to commit to say, I'm not just praying for you. We're going to do something about that need. We're going to have your back. We're going to hold you up. We're going to get you back on your feet. That's why we're a part of these action groups, to live it out. Because Jesus lived it out, and he laid down his life for us. And I I love seeing that. I've witnessed it within the church, with the people who serve one another. People like, I'm going to be there. I'm going to show up. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'll do your laundry for you. You're in the hospital. You're dealing with this. I'll I'll come in. I'll come sit and cry with you. I'll take you out to lunch. I'll help you pay your rent if that's what it takes. You're not going down. You're a part of this family. You're a part of this crew. That's what we want to be. We don't want to be bare minimum Christians, man. We want to live it out because he laid down his life for us. Final thought as we bring this message in kind of for a close more as we, as we just extract these final last truths is, is that this, that the best way to press on is to pass it on. The best way to press on is to pass it on. Notice, he says that he'd received comfort from God, but then he says, who comforts us in our tribulation that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. He goes on, he talks about how that if he receives consolation, it's for their benefit. Even the suffering he was going through, he was saying he knew it was, that he was suffering for a purpose. He was suffering for their benefit. I mentioned moments earlier just that the people who have suffered most are typically the ones who are the most compassionate. The people who've lost the most are oftentimes the ones who love the most. Uh, people who haven't suffered much in life are oftentimes shallow. You know, they can just be trite. They can be kind of airy. But suffering, it gives us character. It gives us depth. I'll give you a little example of this. The word comforter, in, a, in a, addition to having its Greek root in the word brave, it also can mean to, be, to come alongside somebody. Just to come alongside them, to, to, to come right next to them. I'll give you a silly example. Uh, I like snowboarding. I enjoy snowboarding, and, and I'm regular. And when I was trying to train my wife how to snowboard, and she's left-handed, she's goofy-footed. And, uh, you know, I'm there on the mountain, and I'm like, you know, I've been snowboarding since I was a kid. I'm like kind of going in circles around her, just having a blast. And, and she was getting frustrated because, you know, it can be tough on the mountain, right? You're just like smacking you're behind on the ground over and over and over and over again. Your tailbone, oh my gosh, you can't even sit the next day. But what I decided to do when I finally got a breakthrough in teaching her how to snowboard is that I said, you know what? You're goofy-footed, I'm regular, and I'm trying to teach you. And I'm like telling you, it's so easy, come on, get on with it. What I want to do that's going to be more helpful, I'm going to ride switch. So I decided I was going to put myself in her boots, you know, put myself in her position. Why? Because then my butt started hitting the ground some too, right? I started falling down all over the place, and, and, I, and I could actually put myself in her shoes and be like, oh, I understand. Now, you know, you're goofy. I'm goofy too now. And, and I could really teach her the movements and teach her how to do it well, do it right. She ended up getting it like a pro, like a boss, you know, c- catching it on. Well, that's what the Bible says about Jesus, that he came along us. He didn't sit up there and have in every other religion on the planet doesn't have any solutions for suffering, but the gospel says that he came 
alongside us. Look at this, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18. It says, he himself was tested by what he suffered, and he is able to help those who are being tested. Have you ever thought about how in, just insane the gospel actually is? That the creator who made galaxies, who made stars, that he came and he lived a life of poverty, that he came and lived as a minority, a minority. He lived as, as an oppressed person under a totalitarian regime. They didn't live this luxurious, easy life, but he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Maybe you're a victim here. I'm a victim. I've shared that with you before. Maybe you're a victim and you, and you feel that way. You know, Jesus, he became a victim for you. That's the gospel, that the God who created the universe came and was subjected to the exact same things that you and I suffer. That's the message of hope that we have. He stepped in and he suffered with us and he suffered for us. But that raises the question, like, okay, if he suffered in our place, why do we got to keep suffering once we become Christians? Well, I think a good way that describes the consensus of what the Bible teaches about this is what George MacDonald said. George MacDonald said this, the son of God suffered unto death not that men might not suffer, but their sufferings might be like his. He suffered like us so that we could suffer like him. See, I explained earlier on that, 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 that our, the pain in our lives, it wakes us up to the fact that we need Jesus. It wakes us up to, that. oh my gosh, I've been doing my life my own way, making everything orbit around me, thinking I'm in control. I control my own fate. I control my own destiny. But suffering, if you allow it, it knocks you down. It wakes you up to the fact that you need Jesus. But why do you keep suffering once you become a Christian? Because then the suffering makes you like Jesus. All things work together for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Why? Because he predestined us to be conformed to the image of the Son. The only way we could see the depths of God's love was by Jesus suffering for us. But the only way we can share the depths of God's love is by us suffering for others. That's the only way. The only way we could see the depths of God's love is God's suffering for us. But the only way we can share the depths of God's love is through our suffering for others. See, when we get to a place where we let God use our pain, that's when the love of God is really unleashed. When you get to a spot where instead of just like becoming self-focused and self-obsessed and, and all focused on your own pain and your own difficulties, but you start to look up to a broken, suffering world, that's when the love of God is really unleashed. Look with me one more time. He says, he says that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. See, every time something happens to you, it comes with the potential for God to do something through you. And I've seen this in my own life. I mean, I've experienced, I feel like my fair share of suffering, and 
and I don't want to like hype it up or anything, but I've experienced, you know, a great deal of suffering in my life. But I've found that if you trust God with your pain, that the places of the greatest pain become the places of the greatest power. That the darkest, most broken, most lonely, difficult places of your life have the potential to be the place where other people receive the most comfort and God receives the most glory. I've found in my life that pain can become praise, that misery can become a ministry, that trials can become triumph. And that's what the message of the cross does. That if you trust God with your pain, if you hand it to him, you all of a sudden have this ability to reach other hurting people like never before. To comfort other people in this hurting, broken world in a completely different way. And that's why the people who have lost the most are oftentimes the people who've loved the most. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray that we wouldn't just try to move on, but we'd have the ability to press on as we pass it on. That as we find more hope in the resurrection, more hope in the message of the cross, that you put, our, you put yourself in our boots, you strapped, you strapped yourself in, you, you were nailed to that cross, you suffered to a degree that none of us can even understand as you bore the wrath of God, you bore the sins of the world. Lord, you're able to help us in our suffering. And, and when we don't resist, when we don't refuse it, Lord, it unlocks something so that we're able to love, we're able to comfort others. Now, I gotta tell you this though, it's not automatic. See, if you resist God in your pain, it's not like it's automatic. It's not like you know, pain is automatically gained. If you resist God, if you refuse God, if you fight against God, suffering can you make you the most self-obsessed person that there is. Where, where anytime you talk with somebody, you're not just being real, you're wallowing. Where you're stuck in this place of difficulty. See, God only works, he works invitation only. He will not come and work in your life unless you allow him to, unless you invite him to, unless you, you welcome him in. You say, God, come meet me in the misery. Come meet me in the difficulty. Come meet me in the pain. That's the only way that it's possible. And, and so I want to, ask you right now if you want to invite God into your pain, if you want to invite him into the story, if you want to throw in the towel and just recognize, you know what, life isn't all about what I want, but that's a good thing because that means that there's a purpose for this pain, there's a purpose for my life, that there's meaning to my life. If you want to welcome Jesus into your story, if you want to welcome him into your suffering, maybe you're here today and there's something in your past. It's not something that you're going through right now, it's something behind you, but you can't let it go. You can't get through it. You, can't, you feel like you're stuck there, that every day it's on repeat, that every day it holds you back in relationships. It holds you back from the purpose God has ahead of you. It holds you back from your future because you're always stuck in your past. If that's you, would you just raise your hand up? Maybe you just feel like you're, you're just in this place where, where there's a tragedy that you've experienced and it's come to define you. You see yourself as a victim. I want you to know that in Christ, you can be a victor. You can be more than a conqueror. Would you just raise your hand up if that's you? I just want to pray for you. Father, I pray for these who are, who are raising their hand up, who just, they've been through difficulty. They've been through suffering. This word resonates. And I pray that they would find comfort through your Holy Spirit, that they would experience you in a deep way. 
pray that they'd have perseverance. Lord, you say that you're near to those who have a broken heart because your heart was broken. Your, your heart was ripped apart on the cross. And I pray they'd find hope and consolation in that, Jesus. Give them comfort. I pray that we'd be the body of Christ. We wouldn't just go to church. We'd be the church. We'd live it out. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I just want to give one more final word, and that's this. That I'm encouraging you to really sink your roots into these action groups. It'll make a difference not only for you, but for those around you. It'll make a difference in this city. And let's not do it as trite, airy, just, you know, cliche Christians. Let's do it with depth. Let's do it with heart by the grace of God. Amen? Let's stand and sing.